Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. Years ago, I was sitting in this uh, main session of a church leadership conference when I heard a pastor say something that really kind of caught my attention. It kind of caught me off guard. He said, love for God is best illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by love for others who are nothing like you and who may not even like you. Now, to be totally honest, I kind of bristled when I first heard it. I thought, no, 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 no. Okay, love for God is best illustrated, demonstrated, authenticated by how I obey God's commands. That's how I show God I love him, through obedience, I thought to myself. Now, to be fair, I was a seminary student at the time. I'd taken like eight classes, which meant I was an expert on all things Christianity. It also meant that Jesus had given me the sacred task of correcting everyone else all the time. This was my job, and I did it proudly. But as I was thinking about just how and when I would need to go correct the speaker, should I interrupt him while he's talking? Would that be what God wants? Should I catch him afterwards? You know, I'm thinking all these things, right? I heard him say something else. He started talking about the night of the Last Supper, when Jesus told his followers, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And as soon as Andy read those verses, I felt vindicated, right? I knew it. I was right. Loving God is about following his commands. That's what Jesus said right there. But then Andy posed a question to the crowd. He said, what are these commands from Jesus? Let's keep reading in verse 12. Now, I couldn't exactly remember verse 12 from my eight seminary classes, but I was pretty sure it was going to enumerate this very long list of do's and don'ts, all these commands that we were going to have to follow, and I couldn't wait for Andy to have to eat his words. So you can imagine how shocked I was when Andy read John 15, 12, which says, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. And I'll be honest, in that moment, some things began to shift in me. The facade of legalism I had constructed early in seminary and in the church I was working at began to crack. See, Jesus had just hours left before his imminent execution, and he chooses to center his final conversation, the crescendo of all his teaching on one command. Love others as I have loved you. This is the call of every Christian everywhere and for all time. Love every single person we encounter the way Jesus has loved us. 
A couple of weeks ago, we started a new teaching series called Dependence, following Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's based on this final time of teaching from Jesus. The central passage of Scripture for this series is actually the same one that Andy was preaching on that day at the conference from John 15. Here's what it says. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, Jesus says to them, if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And just in case you missed it from a couple of verses ago, this is my command. Love each other. When we began this series two weeks ago, I talked about what it means to abide in Christ like branches on a vine. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to produce good fruit, fruit that will last, fruit that is listed in 1 Corinthians or excuse me, Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is how we can know and understand if we are abiding in Christ. Are we seeing these things in our lives and in the world? But this passage makes it clear, right, that abiding in Christ starts with abiding in his love. So last week, Rachel Delgado talked about what it looks like to experience the love of Jesus and gave us a few practices for how we can recognize and abide in his love. So as we continue making our way through Jesus' final teaching today, we're going to be talking about how do we make sure that we aren't just receiving his love, but giving it away to the people and places around us. And we're also going to talk about kind of a strange passage that's included in here, where Jesus talks about what happens if we actually do that. If we truly live by his love and we're led by his love and give away his love radically and sacrificially to the people around us, what can we expect to happen? We're going to talk about that today as well. But it occurred to me as I was preparing to preach this week that talking about how to receive and then give away God's love is actually what we do every Sunday. Every single Sunday, this is what we talk about. Because that's not only what all of scripture is about, it's what all of the Christian life is supposed to be about. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that this is going to be the final teaching series in our year around the table, this thing we've been doing. Over the last nine months, we've been walking through what it looks like for Restore to be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. And so to make sure we're doing a good job with that, we've put these six kind of measures into practice. These are simply the markers of someone who is seated at Jesus' table and doing everything that they can to follow him. They are, I depend on Jesus. I'm a part of the family, I live invitationally, I pursue justice for the marginalized, I look for ways to be generous, and I include everyone. Now, we've walked through a teaching series on each of these markers over the last year and provided various opportunities to put them into practice, both in our individual lives and in the life of our church family. But I want to let you in on a little secret. It's the same message every week and in every series. Like the first one, right? We've been loved by God and welcomed welcomed into his family. So how do we love others and welcome them into God's family? That's what that whole series was about. 
Next, we've been loved by God and invited to abide with him. So how do we love others and invite them to abide with him? We've been loved by God as he fights for justice on our behalf and on the behalf of everyone else who's feeling oppressed and marginalized and struggling. So how do we love others and then fight for justice on behalf of those folks as well? We've been loved by God and shown immeasurable generosity. So how do we love others and look for ways to be generous? No matter who we are or where we've been, we are loved by God and fully included in his church family. So how do we love others, no matter who they are or where they've been, and fully include them in our church family? It always looks a little bit different, and we examine different biblical stories to help us understand how to make it practical, but everything boils down to receiving God's love and then giving it away to absolutely everyone. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to be a Christian. And as Christians, we are able to do this through the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. I love how scholar Gerard Sloyan puts it in his commentary about this John 15 passage. He says, in emulating him, that's Jesus, one loves not only those deserving of love, but all in the company, lovable or not. Such was the master's way with his disciples, and it is God's way with the human family. This is the way of Jesus, and as Christians who are pursuing the way of Jesus, this is what it looks like. But there's something that goes along with receiving and giving this love that we don't spend very much time talking about. And yet, Jesus talks about it quite a bit in this final time of teaching. He is very clear with his disciples, both then and now, about what will happen if we actually put this radically inclusive, sacrificial love for all people thing into practice. What will happen if we actually do this? Jesus says, let's pick it up. John 15, verse 18, right where we left off. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now, I know I feel like a little clinching when I read that text <laughs> from some of y'all. Because this is a text that has been used and abused in ways that are profoundly terrible. I bet I've heard this passage preached in a dozen sermons, and every time it's been interpreted in a way that pits Christians against everyone else. We're right. They're all wrong. They all hate us because we're right. If anything bad happens, chalk it up. You're just a Christian. That's what happens. They're coming after you, right? And I really think that's neither healthy nor what Jesus is actually talking about here. And it's dangerous because this passage often gets plucked out of Jesus' final time of teaching, which is broad and beautiful and really centered on this idea of love people the way I have loved you. And so it's odd to think, well, in the middle of this love everyone as I have loved you passage, this, this penultimate teaching that Jesus has, he's like, also, they're going to hate you and, you know, go after them. Who even cares? Because we're Christians and they're just going to come after us and that's fine. Like that's out of character for Jesus, right? Now it's important to point out that hatred and persecution of Christians is real. And according to an organization that supports persecuted Christians around the world called Open Doors USA, about 13 Christians are killed every day for their faith. The vast majority of these are happening in the top 10 worst persecuting countries led by North Korea and Afghanistan. Another country on that list is India. 
I personally know pastors in India, friends of mine who've been beaten up and run out of their home villages multiple times simply because they are Christians. This is why we support Christians in many of those countries through our partnerships with indigenous organizations doing incredible work on the ground in those places. But as Christians in the West, specifically Christians in America, we have this tendency to cry persecution in similar ways to how the boy in the famous story cried wolf. I can't tell y'all how many times I've heard these verses used to describe the most ridiculous things. Starbucks takes away our Christmas cups. That's persecution. God's not dead for flops in theaters. Well, Jesus did say the world's going to hate us, right? But getting upset because some Christian preferences are not being privileged as much as they used to be is not the same thing as persecution. I'm going to say that again. That's important. Getting upset because some Christian preferences are not being privileged as much as they used to be is not the same thing as persecution. And it's certainly not remotely close to what Jesus endured just hours after he said this. So likening it to his suffering is like, it's offensive to me. It is downright offensive to me. And if we go back to the actual words of Jesus here, we see that he's not really talking about non-Christians being out to get us just because we are Christians. He says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Why did the world hate Jesus? Not because he was a Christian. That wasn't even a thing yet, right? People hated him because of his radical, sacrificial, and all-inclusive Think about where this section is situated inside of this larger teaching time. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my command. My command is this, love others as I have loved you. And if you do that, if you radically and sacrificially love everyone the way that I have, some people are going to hate you for it, just like they hated me. That's the context of this passage. This is not about the label we carry. It's about the way we live and love like Jesus. When was the last time you heard about a Christian in the West being hated because they loved too much? Because they included the wrong people? Because they stood up for their marginalized neighbors? I know some of you are probably thinking, that never happens. But as someone who's experienced it over and over again, I'm telling you, it absolutely does. But here's the thing. It just doesn't come from people outside the religious community. And Jesus actually says this is to be expected. He continues this time of teaching and says, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. And I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. That phrase, out of the synagogue is used by Jesus in this passage. It's only one word in the original Greek language. And in modern vocabulary, it's a word that's best translated excommunicated. And Jesus is using it here specifically to refer back to something that had happened earlier in his ministry, a time when he heals a man that had been born blind, which seems like a great thing, but Jesus actually does it on the Sabbath, which was a no-no. And here's how the religious leaders react when they find out. John 9, 16. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. 
But other Pharisees asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. The religious leaders are divided. Some believe Jesus is who he says he is, and some believe he is not. So they decide to investigate this instance further by asking the formerly blind man's parents about what happened. Here's what they say. We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue, would be excommunicated. This was something that Jesus did a few different times, actually, breaking a religious law in order to help someone in need. He kind of became famous for it. One time he actually did it in the middle of while he was teaching in a synagogue, which you can imagine probably didn't go over very well. Now, if you've read the accounts of Jesus' life, you know he was constantly in trouble with some of the religious leaders. Now, it's important. It's not all of them, maybe even not most of them, but Jesus experienced severe persecution at the hands of religious people, and he warns his followers that the same thing will happen to them if they live like he lived and if they love like he loved. I have this pastor friend who says it like this, when you act like Jesus... Unbelievers will rarely give you trouble, but those in the church will often turn against you. I love how Tim Keller puts it in his book, Prodigal God. Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. Our churches do not have this same effect, which can only mean one thing. We are not declaring the same message that Jesus did. Now listen, it pales in comparison to what happens to Christians in other countries. But off the top of my head, I can list off 20 Christian friends who have experienced legitimate persecution in the United States for loving like Jesus and helping other people do the same. Personally, I've experienced financial loss and defamation and violent threats and excommunication and more. But here is the thing. None of this persecution came from the government from adherence to other religions, or even from completely non-religious people. Not one single time. For me, every time I've experienced mistreatment for the way I follow Jesus has been at the hands of fellow Christians and churches. Every time. Now listen, I'm not some martyr. I'm certainly not Jesus. I'm doing fine. And I'm really not telling you all this because I want your sympathy or your admiration or anything like that. I am telling you this because I want you to know that pursuing the way of Jesus in every part of your life is going to come with pushback. When you radically and inclusively love people the way that Jesus did, people are going to be upset about it. And sometimes that pushback is going to come from people who mistreat you in the name of God. One of my favorite theologians talks about how rarely do people do as evil things as when they think they are doing it in the name of God. Jesus is, not, Jesus is saying here that people led by love will often be hated and even persecuted by people who are not led by love. 
And tragically, many of the people who are not led by love are in very powerful positions. Sometimes that feels like a prerequisite to get to a powerful position, is to not be led by love. And this happens both inside and outside of religious communities. You remember how Jesus, just in this passage, said that the disciples were his friends? He no longer calls them servants, he calls them friends. When we become friends with Jesus, the same people who hated him are going to hate us. And guess who that is? Well, let me tell you who it's not. It's not the tax collectors and prostitutes. They loved him. It's not the question askers and the doubters. They flocked to him. It's not the oppressed, the broken, the abused, the outcast, the immigrant, the poor, the sick, or the downtrodden. They followed him wherever he went. Who hated Jesus? Tyrannical religious leaders and oppressive political rulers. That's who hated Jesus. And what did those folks have in common? They were not led by love. They were led by a desire to dominate. They were led by a ruthless pursuit of power and riches. Jesus got in the way of that. So these are the people who plotted against Jesus, who had him illegally arrested, unjustly tried, and then executed. Now, thankfully, Jesus didn't stop there. Death couldn't hold Jesus down. He overcame death with life and hate with love. And he offers us the power to do the same. So my question for us this morning as we wrap up is, what do we do when things get tough? What do we do when we start to feel a little mistreated for trying to follow Jesus, for trying to love radically, for trying to include everyone, for trying to pursue justice? Do we stop? Do we gear up for a fight with everyone who mistreats us? I don't think so. Here's the part that we really can't afford to miss. Do you remember how the, Jesus treated these folks who were not led by love? Do you remember how he reacted in the midst of unimaginable persecution? He kept right on loving. He kept right on loving. Sometimes we like to talk about that last week of Jesus' life when he goes into the temple and he gets so mad, right? And he flips over all the tables and he drives out the people with a whip and he's so angry about how his, his father's house has been turned into this house of, of oppression and exploitation and he's so angry. But do you know what he did just a couple of days later for those people that he flipped their tables over? He died for them. I have a friend who likes to say, don't flip over any tables if you're not willing to die for the people who are sitting at them. Jesus just kept right on loving. And to see just how radical this love of Jesus really is, we have to look no further than the cross, right? Just hours after this time of teaching we've been looking at, Jesus is in the middle of being executed. 
He has been beaten, he has been humiliated, and he is being crucified by this group of Roman guards. And as he hangs on the cross, he watches them cast lots to divide up his clothes. Do you remember what he says as he looks down on this scene? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. Even in the face of so much hate, and even in the middle of unimaginable persecution, Jesus chooses love. And this wasn't a one-time thing for Jesus, right? He exhibited this behavior throughout his life and ministry. In fact, Jesus never let someone else's hate keep him from leading with love. Jesus never let someone else's hate keep him from leading with love. When I think of modern examples of leading with love when faced with hate, I think of Martin Luther King Jr. Now, many of y'all know, if we're friends, how influenced I am by Dr. King, so much so that, in fact, in my spare time, I like to read his old sermons from the 50s and 60s. They're just unbelievable. You should totally do it. So this morning, I'm going to end the message by reading you Dr. King's reflection on those words from Jesus, these ones, Father, forgive them, that we just read about. This is from a sermon in 1963. I'm going to read these over. You can close your eyes. You can sit there. You can just absorb them. Here's what he says. Quote, there are probably no words in all the New Testament that express more clearly and solemnly the magnanimity of Jesus' spirit than that sublime utterance from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here we see love at its best. It is impossible to understand the great meaning of Jesus' prayer without noticing the word with which the text opens, Dr. King says. It is the word, then. The verse which immediately precedes it reads thus, quote, And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the malefactors, one on his right hand and the other on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Then when he was dying, a most ignominious death. Then, when he was being plunged into the abyss of nagging agony. Then, when a man had stooped to his worst. Then, when the wicked hands of the creature had dared to crucify the only begotten Son of the Creator. It was then that Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Dr. King goes on and says, behind that then could have been another reaction. Then he could have said, Father, get even with them. Then he could have said, Father, let loose the mighty thunderbolts of righteous wrath and destroy them in their tracks. Then he could have said, Father, open the floodgates of justice and let staggering avalanches of retribution pour upon them. But this was not his response. Though subjected to inexpressible agony, though suffering excruciating pain, though despised and rejected, nevertheless, then he cries, Father. Forgive them. He could preach. I don't know if you know that. That, my friends, is what it means to be leading with love, even when we experience hate. 
this is who Jesus is. And this is who he calls us to be, too. So how do we do this? How do we lead with love even when we encounter hate? We do it by depending on Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit that indwells every follower of Jesus is the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. It's the same spirit that empowered Jesus in this moment and every other moment to meet hate with love. That spirit, guys, lives in us. I can't do this on my own. I can't naturally respond to hate and to meanness and to rude DMs with love. I don't have that in me. Maybe you do. That's great. I don't have it. Whatever it is. But it's by the power of this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that I can lead with love, that we can lead with love even in the midst of hate, even in the midst of pain and pushback and mistreatment. So may we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be dispensers of divine love in the midst of this broken world. And like Jesus, may we never let someone else's hate keep us from love. May we never let someone else's hate keep us from leading with love. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, you are good. You are so good. I'm just astonished by this text by the way you constantly lived and led with love, no matter what the circumstances were. That even when you got angry, that even when you experienced pushback, that even when you pursued justice, you did it all in the name of love, empowered by the spirit of love. God, may that be true of us too. May we be people known by love. God, I, I pray. <laughs> I know this feels weird, God, and may sound weird, but God, I pray that we would live in a way, the way that Jesus lived, that we would love in a way that is so radical and sacrificial and inclusive and justice-centered that pushback would come. God, that the same people who got frustrated with you, who mistreated you, God would see you in us. And when that happens, I pray that we would love them too. God, never, ever allow us by your spirit to meet hate with hate, to meet darkness with darkness. Like Dr. King famously said, hate cannot drive out hate. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. It is only love and light that will fix this broken world. God, make us purveyors of your love and light everywhere that we go. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.